Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We are so glad to welcome you to the briefing this afternoon uh, on the Supreme Court and EPA carbon rules. Uh, we're very excited to have this discussion this afternoon. We know that there has been a lot of interest in this whole topic because uh, the Environmental Protection Agency and the administration have been relying very heavily upon EPA's authority under the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously, that is a huge issue uh, for policymakers as they have been looking at what is the best way to move forward, and there has been great interest um, uh, all over the hill in terms of looking at these cases and the people who have uh, petitioned to bring the cases to uh, the, the Supreme Court, as well as those states that have been strongly supporting EPA's um, uh, authority to regulate greenhouse emissions. We have two very um, uh, interesting special people with us this afternoon, uh, I think, to really take us through what's going on uh, with regard to uh, the Supreme Court case and to walk us through the process, what really is at stake, what are the issues involved, uh, what matters, what do we anticipate based uh, upon what we heard during the oral arguments on, the, on this case. Uh, and obviously, the oral arguments were before the Supreme Court uh, just a little over a week ago on February 24th. So we are most anxious to hear from our uh, presenters this afternoon uh, who will discuss this case and after they have gone through and talked about it, then we'll open it up for your questions and comments. So I would like to introduce um, our speakers this afternoon. Um, first we will hear from Michael Gerard, who is the Andrew Sabin Professor of Professional Practice at Columbia Law School. He teaches courses on environmental and energy law and directs the Center for Climate Change Law and is also, I think very importantly from, from our perspective as well, the Associate Chair of the Faculty of Columbia's Earth Institute. He brings a long experience in terms of uh, working on environmental law cases, was a partner in charge of New York's uh, uh, Arnold and Porter's New York uh, Law Office and is still senior counsel to that firm, but he practiced environmental law in New York City for over 20 years and tried many cases, argued many appeals uh, before federal and state courts. And he has also written very extensively and has done an environmental law column for over 25 years and has edited uh, a monthly newsletter on environmental law also for many years as well as having written a number of books. Um, and we should feel really excited because uh, to have a law professor and have it to uh, be named best law book of the year is really, I think, a distinction that we should take very seriously, don't you? Um, and so he brings all of this wealth of experience and perspective. Our other speaker also has a very interesting, very, very appropriate background for our discussion this afternoon. And that is, uh, that is Amanda Leiter who teaches environmental law, administrative law, and torts at uh, American University's Washington School of Law. Prior to that, Professor uh, Leiter was the, uh, an associate professor at Catholic University's Columbus School of Law. And she also had been a Beagle HLS fellow at the Natural Resources Defense Council. But particularly interesting, perhaps, for our discussion this afternoon, too, is the experience that she brings from having clerked uh, for several judges, uh, including uh, Nancy Gertner for the Federal District Court in Massachusetts, also for David Tatel, who is a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and also clerked for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. And so she also is able to look at things through eyes that have uh, worked very, very closely with uh, a Supreme Court justice as well as, as uh, federal, other federal judges. So I am delighted at this time to turn first to uh, Professor Gerard 
and then we uh, and then we will hear from Professor Leiter and as they lead us through this whole discussion. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to start by giving some of the background how we got to the case. Then Professor Leiter will talk about the oral argument that took place and the range of possible outcomes. And then I'll come back and talk about where it fits in the context of the overall climate action plan by the president and what the significance might be. So as everyone here knows, uh, under uh, President George W. Bush, EPA took the position that uh, EPA did not have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. Uh, then came Massachusetts versus EPA, the landmark decision from the Supreme Court in 2007. And that decision hinged largely on uh, this provision in uh, Title II of the Clean Air Act, the portion that regulates mobile sources, and uh, uh, saying that uh, uh, EPA uh, shall uh, issue uh, standards for air pollutants that, in its judgment, uh, may endanger public health and welfare. Um, and it was for any, any air pollutant from any class of vehicles. Uh, air pollution, air pollutant is defined broadly in the Clean Air Act and the uh, Supreme Court in the Massachusetts case said that this included greenhouse gases and EPA uh, uh, needed to make a decision on uh, the endangerment issue. Uh, not much happened for the balance of the uh, Bush administration, but as soon as President Obama took office, EPA started acting and set off a cascade of regulatory actions. So the Massachusetts case came out, then EPA issued the greenhouse gas endangerment finding in 2009 that was a prerequisite to anything uh, happening. Then EPA issued um, uh, its tailpipe rule, the, the greenhouse gas standards for uh, uh, passenger vehicles, uh, and then the uh, uh, that, in turn, led to regulation of stationary sources. And the reason it led to uh, regulation of stationary sources is this is one EPA regulation. There are a number of other statements. EPA's uh, position over a period of many years has been that as long as a pollutant is regulated anywhere in the Clean Air Act, it triggers uh, stationary source regulation. The problem with that, or one problem with that, is that for the for one program in the Clean Air Act, the Prevention of Significant Deterioration Program, Congress set numerical thresholds uh, that attempted to distinguish between minor sources and major sources, with the idea that EPA shouldn't have to regulate everything, only the major sources, and they set these quantitative limits that for certain kinds of facilities it was uh, facilities that emitted at least 100 tons a year, and for others it was 250 tons a year. Those thresholds made perfect sense for the conventional air pollutants like particulates and sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides, because it had to be a pretty good sized facility before it uh, crossed those thresholds. Those numbers made no sense at all for greenhouse gases. Uh, if those numbers were applied to greenhouse gases, we would be regulating perhaps a million or more facilities. And, Nobody, uh, certainly not EPA, had any interest in uh, that level of, of regulation. So EPA, in order to deal with that problem, adopted the tailoring rule, which is a, uh, a rule that uh, uh, greatly increased the thresholds and uh, phased them in. And so uh, initially it was going to be uh, apply only to sources that already required a prevention of significant deterioration uh, permit. Those are called the anyway sources. And for those, uh, greenhouse gas uh, limitations would be imposed if they, if they emitted at least 75,000 tons a year, a far cry from 100 tons a year in the statute. And then um, kicking it into uh, sources eventually that uh, did not otherwise require uh, PSD uh, permits. Meanwhile, while all of this was going on, uh, the issue of greenhouse gases returned to the Supreme Court in 2011 in the case of American Electric Power versus Connecticut, which arose from a completely different procedural context. That was a common law nuisance case. 
brought by Connecticut and several other states against half a dozen electric utilities uh, saying that under common law nuisance doctrines they should have to lower their emissions. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, by 8-0 um, um, said, no, that couldn't proceed because in the Massachusetts case, we, the court, had said that the Clean Air Act uh, authorizes EPA to regulate greenhouse gases, and that fills the, the field. Congress has decided that EPA is the decision maker here. It's not, uh, it, it's not the courts. Um, the, uh, uh, and so that case uh, um, uh, amounted to a reaffirmation of Massachusetts versus EPA and specifically uh, the authority of EPA under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, which is a different section that, that we'll talk about later on. So EPA had issued the endangerment finding and the uh, tailpipe rule, the rule for motor vehicle emissions, and the tailoring rule, and a couple of other rules. Uh, unsurprisingly, they were sued in about uh, in more than 100 lawsuits brought by various industry groups and a number of states that were opposed to that kind of regulation. Um, all those cases were brought uh, in the uh, D.C. Circuit. They were argued together in a two-day uh, marathon session. Uh, judges uh, Santel and Rogers and Tatel issued a per curiam uh, decision that resoundingly upheld all of EPA's actions. Uh, it upheld the endangerment finding. It upheld the, uh, um, the tailpipe rule. It upheld EPA's findings on the applicability of the Prevention of Significant Deterioration Program. And it found that the tailoring, it didn't uh, go to the merits of the tailoring rule because it said that the plaintiffs who were challenging it didn't have standing to sue because it was really a deregulatory measure. It was a, uh, a law that, um, that made fewer sources um, um, subject to, uh, uh, to regulation. Uh, the the counter-argument had been that, uh, well, it would be so intolerable in that case that Congress would surely act and the D.C. Circuit had so little opinion of that view that is their citation for how difficult it is to enact legislation. They attended uh, a link to the YouTube video of the Schoolhouse Rock, uh, How a Bill Becomes Law. Um, the, uh, the petitioners then petitioned uh, the full court, full D.C. Circuit, all the active uh, judges for en banc review. Um, that was denied, uh, and there were two dissents from that denial. Significantly, one of them, by Judge uh, Kavanaugh, uh, said that um, in order to avoid the absurd results that sort of everybody agreed, led by EPA, would result if we were to apply the strict numerical thresholds, rather than making up new numbers, uh, EPA should have interpreted the statute differently and said that the um, uh, PSD rule should have been interpreted not to be um, uh, uh, applicable here. Uh, there was a, a cert application, a bunch of cert applications. The Supreme Court refused to reopen the endangerment finding. Uh, they refused to reopen the motor vehicle rule. Um, they expressed uh, 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 no interest in those, but they uh, did certify one question is the applicability of the Prevention of Significant Deterioration Program. And with that, I will turn it over to Professor Leiter. Uh, so I'm going to walk you through uh, the Supreme Court's analysis in this case. Um, as Professor Gerard said, the, the court granted cert or agreed to hear a very narrow issue in the case. Um, and I think the first big takeaway is that that already, in my view, was a, was a big win for the agency. They were quite vulnerable here. They had issued, as, I said, as, as you just heard, this endangerment finding where they said greenhouse gases do indeed we, in our view, endanger, and in, and in the view of all reputable scientists, do indeed endanger human health and wel welfare. Uh, that then obligates us, the agency, to regulate emissions of greenhouse gases from the tailpipes of cars. And then, and then this is where it gets trickier, 
that triggers in the Clean Air Act this regulatory cascade, this set of additional regulations that come into play automatically as soon as we have regulated greenhouse gases from any source. So EPA's position for a long time has been as soon as we regulate any pollutant from any source, such as greenhouse gases from the tailpipes of cars here, that then triggers a series of other programs under the Clean Air Act so that we are regulating that same pollutant everywhere that it shows up. That's been EPA's consistent view of how these sort of regulatory modules under the Clean Air Act work over a period of three decades. So EPA said, now we've regulated greenhouse gases from the tailpipes of cars. That means they are automatically, not through any action of the agency, automatically regulated when they are emitted from industry sources, stationary sources, power plants, large chemical producers, things like that. But for the reason that you just heard, the statutory numerical trigger for greenhouse gases would also automatically bring in things like large apartment buildings, Walmart stores, etc. And EPA didn't want to have to reach those smaller sources and also fr frankly couldn't. There was no uh, sort of bureaucratic way that they possibly could extend their permitting program to all of those sources, so they issued this tailoring rule. Um, and what they really tried to do was narrow the trigger. They tried to say, okay, we've regulated greenhouse gases from tailpipes. We're going to regulate them only from the largest of the stationary sources. And they interpreted this number of 100 tons per year of emissions in the statute to be a much larger number. So as soon as you hear an agency trying to interpret statutory, very plain statutory text, I mean, you saw it spelled out 100 tons per year. As soon as you see an agency trying to interpret statutory language that is as plain as that to mean something completely different, uh, I don't know, lights should go off or something. I mean, it's a problem for the agency. Uh, and courts rarely sort of allow them to get away with that. Uh, and so the question was what EPA was going to do under these circumstances, how they were going to try to defend this alternative trigger that they had suggested. Um, but I think it's important, before I even walk through the, the court's analysis, to remember that by, by focusing in just on that question of what the right trigger is, the court had already essentially sanctioned EPA's endangerment finding, sanctioned the tailpipe rule, etc. So there were a lot of potential bullets that EPA dodged just with this narrow uh, cert grant. Okay, so from the narrow cert grant, um, focusing really in on, on what is the trigger for these stationary source permitting requirements, uh, there are a range of potential outcomes that the court could have reached. So the court could say um, EPA had no authority to regulate tailpipe emissions in the first place. That, quest, that answer is basically off the table because the CERC grant was so narrow. Right? They're not going to go back and revisit whether EPA had this authority to regu regulate the tailpipe emissions in the first place. So that was a potential sort of threat that was out there when the CERT petitions were filed, but it's off the table once the grant is so narrow. Um, the second possibility, uh, and this was pushed fairly hard by industry, was to say the stationary source provisions of the statute apply only to what are known as criteria pollutants, sort of standard pollutants that EPA has been regulating for decades. Particulate matter, carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, lead, and ozone. And if that were the case, then when we look back at this trigger, the answer would be once you regulate greenhouse gases from the tailpipes of cars, essentially we lose the trigger to stationary sources. So this, the, the regulatory modules that I talked about would be, would be severed in the Clean Air Act, essentially. We'd only regulate greenhouse gases from the tailpipe of cars and not the other places they come from. So that's one potential way that the statute could be interpreted um, or one potential outcome from the court case. Another potential outcome is to say, okay, we understand these two regulatory modules have to be linked, 
But the way that EPA tried to link them by sort of elevating these statutory numerical thresholds from 100 tons per year to 100,000 tons per year was an awkward way to link them, and the court could come up with some alternative linkage between these two regulatory programs. Uh, and then the final way uh, that, that the case could come out is for EPA, or sorry, for the court to say we owe deference. Courts quite regularly defer to agencies' expertise. They could do that here. They could defer to agencies' sort of greater expertise uh, in the regulation of air pollutants um, and defer to the tailoring rule as it was written, defer to this sort of reinterpretation of what the statutory thresholds uh, would be. Um, so now I want to walk you through some of the language in the case um, and try to establish that, in my view, the, the most likely outcome here is, is going to be somewhere in this third box. Um, I don't think they're going to go so far as to completely sever the stationary source provisions from the tailpipe provisions, but I do think they're likely to narrow the particular trigger for what sources, which, which particular sources are subject to uh, stationary source regulation. Um, and I'll walk through uh, what a couple of the potential triggers might be um, and tell you where I think the court is, is most likely to land. Um, so to do that, I want to show you uh, some language. This is uh, Mr. Keisler for the industry petitioners starting out the case. Um, and you can see right away what the industry's sort of line of attack is going to be. They say this case is unprecedented for two reasons. First, um, EPA is itself saying, essentially, we can't do what the statute commands. We can't regulate all sources that emit more than 100 tons per year of greenhouse gases because there are too many of them. Regulatory impossibility. So he says EPA agrees that if it went ahead and did this the way the statute requires, it would lead to absurd results. And then EPA took that as a basis for rewriting the numerical thresholds in the act because the agency, in the industry's view, wrongly believes that that fixes the problem. So he's, he's sort of underlining for the court that the agency is rewriting the statute, which is a big no-no, particularly for the conservatives on the court. Um, so Justice Sotomayor comes back, well, wait a minute, it hasn't really rewritten them. All it has said is that it can't implement the statute as it's written. Um, that would overburden the agency. It hasn't said it absolutely can't do it. It just said it can't do it right away. Um, and the agency was trying to get away with sort of implementing uh, the statute over time. So they don't just say we're going to elevate the threshold from 100 to 100,000. They say, and you saw, this, you saw the stages in Professor Gerard's slide, they say we're going to elevate it to 100,000 first, and then slowly over time we're going to grow our program. They thought they were placating the court by doing that, right? They thought they were placating the court by saying we're not completely rewriting the statute, we're just phasing in the statutory requirements over time. Well, the industry comes back and says that's actually an even bigger problem for the agency. Because Congress's intent here, and this is true, Congress's intent was to target the largest, most problematic sources. Large power plants in the country, large chemi chemical producers, and not to target Walmarts and large apartment buildings and hospitals and things like that. And so if you now tell us that you're going to slowly over time actually come down to the statutory thresholds, you're actually contravening the congressional intent there because you're actually now going to move beyond the major sources that Congress intended to target, and you're going to start roping in all of these smaller sources. And so the solution that EPA thought it had come up with to sort of phase this in over time, industry is arguing, is actually an even bigger problem, even more uh, inconsistent with, with congressional intent. Uh, so I put this in mostly for humor. Uh, Justice Breyer <laughs> has a habit of introducing hypos that um, don't always advance the ball. Uh, this one involved bubble gum. If there were a statute that said you have to throw out all bubble gum that's been around for more than a month, what about bubble gum used in display cases that nobody ever intends to eat? You see? Um, to which the only answer is no, Your Honor. <laughs> I don't see. Um, uh, Justice Kagan, I think, had the clearest view of the case. Um, maybe I think it's clearest because it's, it's also my view. Um, but uh, she says, wait a second. 
The problem here is we have sort of two clear and inconsistent congressional intents. Congress very clearly does intend for EPA to have authority to regulate greenhouse gases from stationary sources once it has regulated them from the tailpipes of cars. It also very clearly intends only to target major sources. It also very clearly intends, in fact, the numbers are there in black and white, very clearly intends to target any source that emits more than 100 tons per year. Those three things are mutually inconsistent. It can't, you can't possibly implement them all at the same time. And her view is once you have those inconsistent congressional intents, that's essentially the same as having ambiguous congressional intent, right? Because we don't know which of those intents should take priority. And when you have ambiguous congressional intent, there's a sort of long-standing doctrine that says you defer to what the agency does. When there's, when there's ambiguity in the statute, the agency has a lot more room to maneuver. And so she's saying we should take these inconsistent congressional intents, recognize that as ambiguity in the statute, and potentially defer to EPA's resolution of that ambiguity. And now maybe we all need to evacuate or something. No? No. Okay. It's a vote. It's a vote. So um, I included this just to indicate that, that it was clear, really, uh, the tenor of the argument from all the justices, very clear that they have no intent to go back and revisit Massachusetts versus EPA. So the narrow cert grant means what it says. The, the court is not interested in revisiting whether the clean air, the, the very broad question of whether the Clean Air Act grants EPA the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. They are just focusing on the connection between the tailpipe rule and the uh, stationary source provisions. Um, so in addition to the narrow cert grant, this was sort of reassuring to, to the agency in the argument. Um, even the chief justice saying, I was in the dissent there, but, but we're not going to revisit that outcome. Now we'll see whether he remains true to that. He has written at least one dissenting opinion questioning the outcome in that case. But, uh, um, but at least here, he's saying, we're not going to go back and revisit that. Um, so the industry concludes by, uh, and it's a really important sort of tactical move by the industry, the industry concludes by reminding the court of its Connecticut versus American Electric Power decision that you just heard discussed which held that the agency does have authority to regulate these same stationary sources under a different set of provisions in the act, the, the uh, NSPS program it's called. Um, this is the industry being enormously tactical here. They're, they're essentially saying, look, they can get at most of these sources in a different way. And so this very strained reading that they're trying to use to get at these sources through the, the PSD program is unnecessary. They don't need to go in this direction. It's, it's interesting and somewhat ironic that the industry is underlining this as much here as they are. They underlined it also in Connecticut versus AEP. There they were underlining it to say these nu this nuisance suit doesn't have to go forward. We don't need to get sued because EPA can go ahead and regulate us. Here they're saying they don't need to regulate us via this program because they can regulate us via another program that's not on the table right now. But it's important to note that the NSPS program, there's a proposed rule out that you'll hear about in a little bit, that has already been challenged by the industry. So here they're touting this, this industry power as a way to avoid PSD regulation, but we'll see challenges to that same power as soon as EPA tries to, to flex that particular muscle. Um, Okay, so then we move over, I'm, I'm omitting, uh, apologies to him, the Solicitor General of Texas, who also argued here, but uh, moving over to the uh, Solicitor, excuse me, Solicitor General of the U.S., General Verrilli. Um, so he starts out with a, with a different sort of avenue. He says, uh, greenhouse gases pose the same threat no matter where they come from. We recognize that EPA has authority to regulate them from some sources. It makes no sense, essentially, to decouple these provisions of the act that are supposed to work together to enable the agency to address a threat wherever it comes from. It makes no sense to say, well, they only have power here, but not over here. It's the same threat no matter where these, these pollutants come from. Um, but he gets in trouble right away. And I, I, I should have started by saying, um, I don't have a very dismal view of this case, but I don't think EPA is going to win outright. Um, and, and the Solicitor General, you'll see why in a minute, the Solicitor General gets in trouble right away, 
Um, Justice Scalia, who's been quite silent up to this point, jumps in right away and says, why? Why doesn't it make sense to decouple these two things? Entirely reasonable to say you can regulate the pollutant over here, but it starts to create all sorts of bureaucratic nightmares if you try to regulate it in, under this program. Decouple the two programs. What's, what's so unreasonable about that approach? Um, so General Verrilli says, well, wait a second. These two programs, the NSPS and the PSD programs, are supposed to work together. The NSPS program, which if you remember is the one that um, uh, Mr. Keisler had been touting, right? That's a, a program that enables the agency to set category-wide emissions controls for all stationary sources that emit greenhouse gases, as opposed to source-by-source -source technology based controls. And General Verrilli says, well, these programs are supposed to work together. They set a category-wide floor via the NSPS program, and then they use the individual source-by-source -source pro uh, permitting program to, uh, in a sort of technology-forcing way, to push the technology to advance, and then the floor gets reset every eight years, and the floor can be in, uh, upped. The emissions control requirements can be upped as the technology improves. So he's trying to make the point that these two programs are supposed to work hand in hand. They're supposed to complement each other. But the point gets lost pretty quickly. And you see that uh, first with a question from the Chief Justice. He says, well, uh, wait a second. If the greenhouse gases can be regulated through the um, uh, PSD program with respect to some sources that are where the trigger uh, is an easier trigger, essentially, um, that gets you to 83% of where you want to go, essentially. Why do you need this additional power? Why do you need to sort of torture the statute in this way to get these additional sources. So he's sort of, he's not fully understanding how these programs are supposed to work together. Um, and, and Justice Kagan, too, um, seems to have problems with the way the agency has done this. Um, her problem is uh, with what I mentioned earlier, the fact that the agency is saying that it's going to set a threshold initially, but eventually over time, it's going to try to grow the program down to the statutory thresholds, essentially. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get around eventually to regulating sources all the way down to, maybe not all the way to the 100 ton per year statutory threshold, but it's eventually going to start bringing in more sources. She actually finds that sort of slow accretion of regulatory authority even more problematic than if the agency had just elevated the threshold once and stopped there. Right, so she says, the solution EPA came up with seems to give it complete discretion to do whatever it wants, right? So we're going to give it some room to, to maneuver if the statute is ambiguous, but it's taken more room than we can really allow it to have. Um, so this, as I was reading through the transcript, this was the first quote that gave me significant pause, because she seemed like she was the sort of biggest agency supporter and had the clearest understanding of what EPA had tried to do, and yet here she seems to be signaling that she's, she's not fully on board. Um, and then <laughs> Justice Sotomayor says, uh, I know litigants hate this question, but if you're going to lose, how do you want to lose? Um, so litigants do indeed hate that question, except that um, it gives them some ability to shape what the loss looks like, to find a fallback position. Um, and so then uh, at the end, you do see General Verrilli offering this fallback position um, which is to say, we still want to have a trigger in place. We still want to be able to say that when um, these greenhouse gases are regulated from the tailpipes of cars, that triggers the obligation to regulate them also from large stationary sources. The problematic pollutant for this purpose is carbon dioxide, because that is the one that is emitted in such large quantities that if you use the statutory trigger, you start to get to hospitals and apartment buildings. So what he's saying is, let's keep the trigger in place, and let's just read carbon dioxide out of that trigger, because it's a different, it's, it's a, it emitted in such a larger quantity than the other pollutants. So his sort of compromise solution is to say, let the statutory uh, trigger, these regulatory modules, work in exactly the way Congress intended for every other pollutant, but not carbon dioxide. We can go ahead and regulate carbon dioxide once the uh, stationary source provisions are triggered for a different pollutant, 
but for triggering purposes, we're not going to include carbon dioxide. That's his fallback position. He, he emphasizes several times, I'm not endorsing that, but you know, if the, if the court needs a compromise, this is the com compromise. Um, and so I just want to leave you with the potential outcomes from the case. Um, the one that, that I think the agency most feared was largely off the table from the CERT grant. And that was a, a sort of complete decoupling of the tailpipe provisions of the act from the stationary source provisions. If there had been a complete decoupling, that's my sort of red arrow at the top there, um, there would be no trigger. And the fact of regulation of greenhouse gases from the uh, tailpipes would not trigger uh, regulation of them from stationary sources at all. I think that's off the table. It seems to be off the table from the question presented, and it continued to seem to be off the table from the way the tenor of the court's discussion. Um, so what remains are some sort of narrower tr potential triggers. One is to say that the, the program is only triggered for sources that emit above the statutory threshold of those criteria pollutants that I mentioned before. Ozone, sulfuric acid, particulate matter, things like that. But once it's triggered, you can still regulate greenhouse gases from those large sources. So that's the, the anyway sources solution that you heard mentioned earlier. Sources for whom the stationary source permitting provision would be triggered anyway, well, now we're going to tack on some obligations to control their greenhouse em uh, emissions as well. But we're not going to add obligations to any new sources. That's one possibility. Another possibility is this all but carbon dioxide possibility that General Verrilli tried to plant in the court's mind um, at the end of oral argument. My guess is that that may be the outcome we'll see, because the court seemed somewhat accepting of it. Um, another possibility is something that the industry offered, which is to focus the stationary source provisions on uh, pollutants that have only local effect, that is, effect right around the power plant and not global effect like greenhouse gases. The problem with that for EPA is that they already regulate a bunch of pollutants that have more global or at least regional effect, like sulfuric acid mist and things like that, uh, where the effect is not purely local. And if the agency were to adopt that approach, I don't have an arrow for it, but, but it, sorry, if the court were to adopt that approach, uh, EPA would lose some of the regulatory authority it is now exercising. So that would sort of interfere with some existing regulation. Um, then there's the tailoring rule at the bottom. I'm fairly pessimistic for the survival of the tailoring rule as it's currently written. Um, and then finally is the, the outcome that nobody likes, which is that they would have to regulate all uh, sources above the statutory threshold, and that's where the agency said that leads to absurd results and administrative impossibility. So what, is, what do these outcomes mean for the president's climate agenda? I'm going to turn it back over to Professor Gerard. Thank you. So as you all know, last June, President Obama issued his climate action plan. Uh, it talks about uh, power plants uh, as the principal target for regulating uh, greenhouse gases, and rightly so, when you look at the toxic uh, greenhouse gas inventory, uh, power plants are 72% of the uh, emissions from stationary sources. But the president's plan did not say a word about the PSD program. It was talking entirely about the new source performance standard program. Um, and so it does not rely in the least uh, uh, on, on the PSD program. In focusing a little bit on the differences between the programs, the, the new source performance standards under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. Uh, then the, the other two, the, it's, a, it's confusing terminology, but there's a new source review program, which unfortunately still has the same words as new source, but the two on the right are often talked about together as the PSD program. It's really uh, uh, one program, and parts of it apply only in attainment areas, meaning areas where there is compliance with the national ambient air quality standards and the other non-attainment areas, but, but just sort of treating them together. The new source performance standard program, the NSPS, you have a national standard set by EPA that applies everywhere. Uh, the, uh, uh, the other programs, the PSD program, are run primarily by the state um, and, and uh, less of a direct uh, role. 
So the, the, most, the best known and the most often used portion of the new source performance standard program falls under section 111B of the Clean Air Act. And it calls on uh, EPA to publish these categories and then to come out with regulations for each category. Uh, EPA has been thinking about doing that for some time for fossil fuel plants. Uh, they issued an initial proposal in April 2012. Uh, uh, it wasn't clear what was going to happen. President Obama's plan last June put EPA on a schedule. Uh, gave them a deadline on the last day, uh, on the deadline date, they issued a revised proposal uh, that would have slightly different standards for natural gas plants and coal plants, and essentially could not be met by coal plants unless they installed carbon capture and sequestration, which is not a technology that is yet in uh, widespread commercial use. Uh, there was no clear timetable that was set for issuing the final rule. But the most important thing to say about this is nobody is starting up new coal-fired power plants anyway. There are a couple that are still under construction, uh, but uh, we, are no, we are seeing almost no new proposals for coal-fired power plants, primarily because of the low price of natural gas, uh, also because of a whole lot of non-greenhouse gas-related uh, environmental regulations that are causing uh, problems. So, uh, to in, in one sense, uh, this standard is, is symbolic, but it does take on uh, a particular legal importance. And that is when we talk about Section 111D, the other big program under Section 111. 111B that I just showed is for new plants. 111D is for existing plants. And it's the existing plants that are this huge wedge here. It's the existing plants uh, uh, dominated by coal that are the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States and, and, uh, today. And so the question is, how do you, how do you get it though? So we have 111D, uh, which is um, uh, sort of very narrowly applicable. It's almost like uh, threading the needle to, to make it uh, applicable. But it does seem to apply to uh, 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 to greenhouse gases. So start, EPA administers regulations which shall establish a procedure similar to that under Section 407410. Section 7410 is the part of the Clean Air Act that calls for state implementation codes. You know, most of the Clean Air Act is left to the states. Uh, EPA sets the national ambient air quality standards. It's up to the states to figure out how to meet them. So the states come up with their own plans that uh, will hopefully allow the states to meet the air quality standards. So 111D says, unlike with 111B with the new plans, for these old plans we're going to require the states to come up with plans to meet these, but there will be EPA uh, uh, guidance on, uh, on how the states ought to do that. And then significantly, it only applies 111DA little ii to pollutants for which a standard of performance under the section would apply if such existing source was a new source. In other words, you need to have the new source standard, the 111B standard, in order to trigger 111D. And, and then um, uh, going down to, to B, 111D1B, uh, the uh, EPA has to come out with the overall uh, uh, guidance. So EPA is now uh, working on that. Uh, here again, the president has put them on a schedule. Uh, EPA needs to propose its guidelines in June of 2014. It finalizes the guidelines after it uh, thinks about the presumably million-plus comments it will receive um, in June of 2015. Uh, then the states submit their state implementation plan-like documents a year later in June of 2016. And then uh, uh, we will undoubtedly have a lot of fights with a lot of states that don't want to do that. Um, and, and that will take a long time. Uh, the following January, there will be a new president. And so much of this litigation and administration will happen under the regime of the next president, whoever he or she may be. Uh, but this is the schedule that they are, uh, that they are now under. Uh, there are a lot of open questions about just what these new standards are going to look like. Uh, 
and, and here similar questions are also faced with the new source performance standards program, but some, quest, some of the issues that EPA is going to have to confront, are they going to require a plant to switch its fuel? Are they, for instance, are they going to require a plant to switch from coal to natural gas? Are they going to require for coal carbon capture and sequestration, even though that technology is not very far along? Uh, what is going to be the role of energy efficiency as part of the, uh, the measure? Uh, uh, what triggers it? How long is it going to take? Should EPA be picking technologies? Um, now, one of the, there, let me just, just stay on this chart. One of the big open questions that EPA is going to have to confront in the 111D standards is called the beyond the fence issue. Everybody recognizes that there are ways to improve the energy efficiency and hence reduce the emissions of a power plant within the power plant. There are lots of technologies that will make it run more efficiently so it will generate fewer greenhouse gases per unit of electricity produced. But there are also even more opportunities for uh, reducing uh, energy use outside the fence line by, by going to the customers and having various measures, uh, appliance standards and building standards and many other things that will reduce the overall uh, emissions. Um, and so one legal question that EPA is going to have to, and policy question that EPA is right now thinking about is does it regulate beyond the fence line or only within the fence line. They know that whichever way they go, they'll be sued six ways to Sunday, uh, but it's one of the, one of the challenges that they, uh, that they face. Meanwhile, the environmental community for uh, you know, some years ago set the object objective of preventing the construction of any new coal-fired power plants. That, for the most part, has happened and so the environmental community's focus has now moved to trying to shut down the existing coal-fired power plants to the extent that they can. They don't need uh, greenhouse gas regulations in order to accomplish a significant portion of that because there are lots of other uh, environmental regulations on top of cheap natural gas, lots of other environmental regulations that are making it more expensive to continue to operate a, uh, a coal-fired power plant. And uh, the mercury rule uh, uh, is, is in effect. It was argued in the D.C. Circuit uh, in December. Uh, somehow the same day the Supreme Court heard argument on the cross-state air pollution rule, which is another set of, of, of important non-greenhouse gas air pollution uh, uh, regulations. There are other regulations that are, that are coming down the, the pike, and, um, and all of them will uh, uh, you know, add up to a burden on coal-fired power plants. Now, the World Resources Institute did an interesting study of the different techniques that are available for each of the sectors to reduce their emissions, and uh, we'll, we'll post these, but, but let me just show this. They also took a look at where do these various standards get us in relation to the, uh, the announced plan that we're going to be reducing uh, emissions to 17% below a 2005 uh, uh, baseline in 2020, and, uh, and then much further down the road. So even with uh, uh, a vigorous uh, federal program and some state programs, we don't quite get there. Uh, uh, we, we make a lot of progress, but we don't quite get there. And the there that we don't get to is still not enough to uh, achieve the UN standards for a 2% for a two-degree limitation on uh, increases in, uh, in, in global temperatures. Even greater ambition is required for that, but there isn't much discussion of that right now. So, so just to, uh, to close and open it up for, uh, uh, for discussion, just about everybody agrees that the Clean Air Act is far from an ideal tool to regulate greenhouse gases, that it would be much better if we had a congressional enactment that were aimed specifically at, uh, at greenhouse gases, but it's clear that we won't get that anytime soon. And so in the absence of that, the Clean Air Act is the strongest tool the administration has and is trying to use it. The, the decision from the Supreme Court in this case uh, is going to have an effect on the margins. Uh, it doesn't affect the, the most important program that's relevant here, Section uh, 111. Uh, uh, but I think it will give us a strong reading of how much flexibility 
the court is going to give EPA in the other programs. As we've discussed, there are a lot of policy choices and legal choices EPA is going to have to make under Section 111, uh, and some of them are closer to the strict statutory language than others. So I think the decision that we get from the Supreme Court in the case that was just argued will be a good indicator of how much flexibility EPA is going to have when it issues the much more important Section 111D regulations. Great, thank you very, very much. So, now that we've been through this law school seminar, let's open it up for your questions or comments. If you could just identify yourself, please. Uh, Jeremy Jacobs from Greenwire. Oh, hello. Um, two quick questions about possible outcomes. Uh, if the court were to go with the must be a NAX pollutant in order to trigger PSC programs, the environmental groups involved in the case I was going, do you think there's a statutory problem with that? Like, what happens to the deadly sounding sulfuric mist? Uh, how could the court resolve that? And then the second question is, if they were to go with the Kagan scenario that was saying that you have a problem with EPA continually adjusting this, how do they do that without throwing out the entire tailoring? On the first, yeah. you're quite right. There are a few other non National ambient air quality standard pollutants that have been regulated under the same theory, and uh, there is you know one scenario under which uh, that would be thrown out, and therefore the regulation of those pollutants would also be a problem. At least the except those from the anyway sources, the sources that already triggered the uh, uh, that issue. And on the second, I guess I think the tailoring rules days are numbered, and I think that I mean that's my personal view of the outcome of the oral argument. Um, uh, although it's dangerous to predict these work this court. But um, what's really interesting about that is that the D.C. Circuit said that no one had standing right. to challenge the tailoring rule. The Supreme Court chose not to address the standing issue, and yet the, the question, you know, and they said they were focusing instead on the relationship between these two regulatory modules, but the upshot of the case is very much going to be the survival of the tailoring rule, and I don't think it's going to survive. I think we're going to get a narrower trigger that is a one-time change to what the statutory trigger is. I do still think there'll be a trigger. I, my prediction is that it won't be as limited as the NAC's only trigger. Um, we're doing, Ginsburg also seemed to have a problem with, this, with the really fallback, if I recall correctly, about just picking out CO2. As I think she seems to think the court couldn't just pick out one greenhouse gas after saying in AEP and previously that EPA has the authority to do this. Well, so one possibility is that there won't be a majority rule on what the right trigger is, right? Because they didn't seem to be unified in what the right trigger would be. And that arguably is the right outcome here anyway, would be to say, okay, EPA, you didn't get the trigger right for these reasons, go back to the drawing board and figure out what the right trigger is. That's a possibility. Um, and of course, the uh, the only tea leaf that matters, I think, is Justice Kennedy. And he was um, some combination of silent and also not quite up to speed in the oral argument. So I didn't wasn't really able to get a read on where he was going. But if they do send it back, a very important question will be what happens meanwhile. Right. Uh, do these standards remain in effect while EPA thinks about it, or are they off the table? Uh, we saw a similar issue with the uh, interstate uh, rule, uh, which is now under adjudication, which all has a chaos when the rule was, was vacated and it was reinstated. Uh, we also have the perspective, I certainly hope not, that if we have a fracture court, we could end up with a situation comparable to what we have with the wetlands definition on the Rapanos, which drives everybody crazy, where you have a bunch of different decisions, and it's hard to figure out. Uh, it's, it's really good for law professors, uh, but it's hard for everybody else to figure out what the regulations are. So we hope that's not what happens. Uh, hi, John Weinberger. I'm a, a, a freelance lobbyist. Uh, I'm wondering, is, is there as an outcome from the court where uh, the EPA could not uh, regulate stationary sources? I don't think that's, I mean, complete lack of authority to regulate stationary sources is not on the table in this case, no. Well, I, I, I mean, 
It would have happened had they had they reopened the endangerment finding. Then absolutely. That but would, but what, what, what if what if they say uh, EPA, you you know you cannot you know write these thresholds for uh, which you know which stationary sources qualify for regulation and um, uh, so you're you know you're in violation of the statute and uh, you, you know you can't go forward with this program. But the thresholds only apply to the PSD program. They do not apply to the new source performance standard program. So uh, sort of worst case scenario for EPA, I think, is that the Prevention of Significant Deterioration program doesn't apply to greenhouse gases. But isn't that the most important uh, program, the, the PSD program? Uh, no. No, and, and as I just said in the President's plan, he, uh, he relied entirely on 111, didn't even mention the PSD program. very much. It's Dawn Meese with Inside EPA. <clears throat> so I had two quick questions. I was wondering if you could both maybe go back and talk a little bit more about the standing issue, given that it was such a huge part of the lower court ruling, and given that <coughs> a major issue in the Massachusetts case was whether the states had standing, and here it disappeared somehow. Um, and the second question I had is the difference between the 83% and the 86% <coughs> Um, I, I'm, I've never been clear where that number comes from, so I don't know, I don't know if you do. But isn't there also a huge time difference between you regulate now under PSD versus an NSPS for every single sector, and those rules take a long time? So let's do standing first. Do you want to address that? Uh, sure. Um, and I'll say then. Uh, quickly, the numbers are complicated. I was able to sort of back calculate how the American Chemistry Council got there, and I'm happy to explain it, but not in this <laughs> setting. They calculated it. It worked for their argument. It's not inaccurate. Um, the standing issue is, an, is a really interesting one. So the tailoring rule is expressly deregulatory. It is EPA's effort to say, we don't want to have to regulate this million-plus sources. We're going to regulate a subset of them. Industry wanted to challenge it because they don't want to be regulated at all. But the only injury they could point to is that there were a bunch of people, or the only consequence they could point to from that rule is that there were a bunch of entities that were not being regulated because of it. And there was a sort of spirited discussion in the D.C. Circuit of, how is that an injury to you? I suppose they could have come back and said it was some sort of competitive injury, but they didn't. So uh, the, the D.C. Circuit said no injury. What was really interesting about it is that there were some environmental groups initially that were going to be in the case, and it's pretty clear they would have had standing because their complaint would have been the failure to regulate all of these intermediate sources causes an environmental injury, and they would have had standing there may or may not have been some backdoor negotiations to get them out of the case. So that's why we're left with no standing. Um, and it was interesting to me that the Supreme Court was not interested in revisiting that, although they've ended up being able to have their cake and eat it too because they don't have to address the standing issue, but they're going to be able to address the continued vitality of the tailoring rule anyway. So I don't think that standing was an issue in this case, unlike in the Massachusetts case. Because in this case, you had industries that were adversely affected economically by the regulations, and that that was enough. Uh, Massachusetts was uh, it was necessary for the plaintiffs to establish that they were hurt by the lack of regulations, such as the sea level rise of Cape Cod, which is what what gave them standing. So it, it appeared in a different posture. And as Professor Lager said here, it looks like we're going to have sort of a collateral challenge to the. Tailoring rule uh, via uh, uh, it, it, the effect that <coughs> these particular provisions of the Clean Air Act have, have on the PSD rule without having to get to standing. Now, on the question of the 83%, 86%, uh, what that's uh, about is those of you who've read the, the transcript over there know that uh, there's a number in, uh, in, in the American Chemistry Council brief saying that uh, if you Regulate um, uh, greenhouse gases from the from the anyway sources, from the sources that are uh, that trigger 
this requirement uh, because of their other pollutants, you're getting at 83% uh, of all the greenhouse gas emissions. And if you also regulate uh, the sources that only trigger the rule because of the greenhouse gas emissions, you get up to 86%. And so, that, and so it's, not, it's not that huge a difference. It's not really uh, uh, apples and oranges. Uh, uh, I mean, for one thing, this is still only applying to uh, new or modified sources. It's not getting at all, at, at all existing sources. So there's still a lot of existing sources that would escape under any pathway. But the fact that there's such an apparent narrow difference between the two, I think, was a significance to some of the justices that may persuade them that that this uh, that the way to come out is to uh, just regulate greenhouse gas emissions from the anyway sources and not have it as a trigger in and of itself. But I think the bigger point is that it misses the connection that these two programs are supposed to have with each other, right? I mean, that's a, at this point in time, an SPS would get you to 83% of the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions from stationary sources that would be regulated anyway. And PSD would get you to 86%. But they're not static. They're, the PSD program is supposed to be technology forcing. It's supposed to improve what options are available for controlling these emissions. And then having improved those options, the NSPS floor is supposed to be raised every eight years over time. Uh, and you lose that ratcheting effect if you lose the PSD program. So. And, and the New Trucks Performance Standard was adopted by the Clean Air by Congress in 1970. And then in 77, when Congress went back to uh, revise it, it said the NSPS program isn't good enough. And they added the PSD program on top of that, because the NSPS program wasn't going to get to where we needed to be, at least fast enough. In, in cleaning up the air. So they did want to add that other thing. It's not a trivial program, uh, but in the, in the, when we talk about fossil fuel plants, we do have the powerful tool of one level. Okay. Other questions or comments? We have time for a couple more. Gil Moore, private attorney. Um, I'm kind of new to the issue, but it seems to me that um, if there's a strict statutory standard, how is the court going to get around that to allow the EPA to uh, interpret? Well, Justice Kagan, the president for that. I mean, Justice Kagan was was saying that we have contradictions within the statute, and we have to come out one way or the other, um, and uh, that's what they're struggling with. The question of what is the precedent for that is exactly what Justice Kennedy asked. He said, what's the what's the precedent, precedent you can come up with for there being a quantitative um, standard uh, in, set forth in a statute and uh, an agency coming out with a different number? And um, so far, I haven't seen a lot of citations emerging. No. I mean, the only one that uh, just, sorry, General Verrilli was offering was uh, Morton versus Ruiz, but it's not particularly satisfying if you go back and look at it. It doesn't do this. So uh, they don't have a great precedent. I mean, the, but the, the squarely conflicting intent of, on the one hand, numbers laid out there in black and white, but on the other hand, Congress's very clear intent to aim only at the larger sources. Um, in this case, you can't effectuate both of those intents. There's just no way to do it. So there needs to be a compromise solution. Either either approach is a, is a compromise of the other. So. so they couldn't say all or nothing. In other words, uh, there's a standard. You can't change the standard. So send it back to Congress. Well, we know how much that will come. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, any other last questions? Uh, Dan Watt is um, I'm an attorney with Big Purple Woman Emory. Um, I was just wondering if you've got any views on the viability of 111D to reach CO2 emissions from existing plants if the court were to adopt that if you lose your relief fallback. I don't see how it affects that. I, mean, I think it's a completely different program. Uh, 111D does not depend, depend at all on in these thresholds. Uh, you know, there are 111D has its own uh, issues, uh, which are surely going to be litigated or already you know, being litigated to the law. Uh, but but I don't I don't see it uh, that decision from the 
uh, from last week's case uh, directly affecting that, uh, beyond what I said, but it'll tell us about how much slack the court is going to give EPA in this interpretation of the statute. I agree. But of course, all of this is going to end up kind of getting it, happening kind of all at the same time in terms of when we expect the ruling from the Supreme Court to come out by first July, right before the before the uh, before they recess for the summer, and and then also EPA's moving forward with regard to 111D. Right. The EPA so. would love to know the the. the decision in this case before they issue the 111D standards, and as you said, they may happen right around the same time. time, which will create a very, very interesting scenario. So don't go away in June. That, that's, that's right, and we may very well want to revisit this whole issue because it is going to be such a very huge issue that, that I think so many policymakers are, are very, very uh, interested in and concerned about. And, are certainly hearing from a lot of people across the country uh, about that. And I know that just in terms of thinking about 111D, that we've been hearing from so many <coughs> states that are very, very interested in terms of, as you raised, uh, in terms of looking beyond the fence and, and what this means in terms of efficiency, renewables, and, and how that can be put into greater flexibility for the state's implementation plans. So it's going to be very, very interesting. So everybody stay tuned. Um, the briefing today and the materials will be posted on our website. And please join me in thanking <coughs> Professor Leiter and Professor Gerard. This was really, really interesting and I hope very helpful to you.